All right, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. Really significant developments overnight, perhaps after you went to bed. Happy to have Phil by my side. Good morning. Good morning. How, How you doing? doing? You know those moments where you see a transcript of something and think, yes. oh, I'd really like to listen to the actual tape. And then CNN obtains the tape. And then the tape is just as bad, if not worse, than the transcript was. And you think, oh, wow, this is huge news. And then a former president is at the center of it. That's yeah. what we're going to get started with this morning. But first, five things to know for this Tuesday, June 27th. First on CNN, what we were just talking about, that audio tape that is central to the prosecution's case of Donald Trump. Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents, you will hear directly from the former president in his own words, telling people, quote, this is secret information. Look at this. And just hours from now, we may get a glimpse of how Trump's political rivals leverage that new audio against him, if they do at all. He and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis set to collide on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. Also new this morning, Russia says it is dropping all charges against the Wagner Group, the rebel army that was prepared to march on Moscow just this weekend. But questions remain about where their leader is. And all eyes on the Supreme Court this morning. We're standing by for rulings on several consequential cases, including affirmative action and student loan forgiveness. And for the first time in 20 years, cases of malaria have been contracted here in the United States. Scientists warn the climate crisis is playing a key role. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. There is a lot of news today, but we want to begin with the biggest, and it is a first on CNN. Former President Donald Trump heard on audio talking about holding secret documents that he did not declassify. CNN has obtained that recording from a 2021 meeting at the former president's Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club. In it, Trump appears to indicate he was holding a secret Pentagon document containing plans to attack Iran. Take a listen. These are bad, sick people. That, but, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started they, right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying Millie, to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's see here. <laughs> yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack, and Hillary would print that out all the time. You know, <laughs> private email. No, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying because we were talking about it, <laughs> and he, you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what. He's in the papers. Wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to 
declassified. Figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible, right? No. Hey, bring some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. There he is, in his own words. That audio is crucial evidence in federal prosecutors' case against Trump over his alleged mishandling of classified information after he left the White House. Federal prosecutors have charged him with putting national security secrets at risk. It didn't take long for the former president to respond. Here's what he wrote on Truth Social. Quote, the deranged special prosecutor, Jack Smith, working in conjunction with the DOJ and FBI, illegally leaked and spun a tape and transcript of me, which is actually an exoneration rather than what they would have you believe. Close quote. Let's begin with our senior crime and justice correspondent, Caitlin Polance, live in Miami this morning. Look, because of the reporting of you and your colleagues, we knew what the transcript was, what the words were. But I think, as Phil said at the top, to hear it is a completely different thing. Legally, though, is it damning? Well, Phil and Poppy, that's exactly what we're looking at here, right? We had the transcript of this. We knew what the words were that Donald Trump had spoken because the Justice Department confirmed them in that indictment. It was words on a page. But this brings it to life, not just for us to hear now, but it is the sort of thing, the sort of piece of evidence that prosecutors will be playing in a courtroom to tell the story of this case. And particularly from what we can see in the indictment, they're going to want to be using this to show how cavalier Donald Trump was with these documents that he's accused of retaining after he left the White House at Mar-a-Lago, right? He's showing them to people. He's potentially disseminating to them to people. And he's also showing that he has knowledge that these documents are secret, uh, at least this one in particular, that he's acknowledging that it was classified and he's getting that feedback on that audio recording from the others in the room. Yes, every time he's saying, look, and they're responding to him. Yeah, we see it. We see it. We agree with you. And so that's the sort of thing that we would very much expect to be used at a trial, if not once, but multiple times during witness questioning. You know, Caitlin, one of the big questions I think we've all had, it seems that I think to some degree a special prosecutor has as well, these documents that the president is referring to in this tape, do we know where they are now? Will there be further searches? What's the status there? Well, there's no indication right now that there would be further searches. It's charged in this case that we already have. Uh, but there is a big question about what happened to this document. We know it's a real document. Uh, that was part of the reporting when we first broke this story, that this type of document did exist during Trump's presidency. He would have been privy to it. He would have been able to have it and take it with him. And after the Justice Department got this audio tape, they subpoenaed Donald Trump and his lawyers for this specific document or any copies of it he had. Now, if that indicates whether they couldn't find it uh, or they already had it in their possession and just wanted to make sure there was nothing else out there, we don't exactly know. Uh, it is something that could come out in trial that the prosecutors might have. Donald Trump's team was not able to produce the exact document. And Trump has clearly been leaning into that even since uh, he was indicted. And this particular document, this episode, is part of the case against him. Here is what he has said previously uh, about what he was waving around in this audio recording that he's so clearly showing this particular document to these others. 
There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just Now, will that work in court? That's going to be a question for the jury to, to decide. But this is the sort of thing where prosecutors are going to be able to play that audio tape. And then we know that they have called witnesses, at least one of the people that was in the room witnessed this, to the grand jury and very likely would call those people into the trial itself to testify what they remember exactly seeing Trump holding up during this episode. And Caitlin, Still on top happy? of all of this, someone who is alleged in the indictment to have moved a bunch of boxes is Walt Nada, right? Trump's right hand and aide. He's going to be arraigned today on charges that he helped hide classified documents that the DOJ had wanted back. What's going to happen today in court with this? Well, we're expecting that to be a pretty short hearing today with Walt Nada, Donald Trump's valet, his body man, a man who still works for him and travels with him as a political aide. Walt Nada is set to come back into the federal courthouse behind me in downtown Miami this morning to formally enter his pleading of not guilty. He didn't do it two <coughs> weeks ago when we were here before for Trump's arraignment, but he's coming back in to do it. He's now uh, very much expected to have a lawyer from Florida helping with his case in addition to his uh, typical lawyer that's been helping him through this. But one thing about Nada, remember, he's not charged in the retention. He is charged in concealing documents and making false statements as a part of a cover-up to this retention case against Donald Trump. Caitlin Polance, thank you for the reporting on all of that. Let's bring in CNN senior political commentator Adam Kinzinger and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, to you. I want you to listen to Trump's former lawyer, this is Jim Schultz and what he thinks about this. Let's play uh, the first soundbite from him last night with Abby. Okay, we don't have it. I think I, I saw him. Apologize for that. <laughs> I know what he said. It's okay. Okay. I mean, he said this is very damaging to Donald Trump. This is very helpful for DOJ's case. But he said both on the Espionage Act and on the obstruction front, which I thought was so notable. Yeah, I think he's right on both of those. I agree with Jim on this. First of all, on the Espionage Act front, the Espionage Act, just to be clear, the charge here is not espionage per se. It's yeah. willful retention of national defense information. Well, what does this tape establish? Donald Trump had sensitive information, confidential information relating to military plans. He knows that that's what this is, and he's sharing the information information somehow or other with outsiders with no security clearance. And then when you get to the obstruction angle, let's remember when this happens, this tape. This is July of 2021. At this point, National Archives, several months before, has already come to Trump's team and said, hey, we have some concerns. You have some documents that you shouldn't have. We need them back. Yet at this point, he's already in the process of hiding those documents from the archives and eventually from DOJ. Adam, I think one of the questions that I've had throughout is that this tracks the tape, the possibility that this was actually happening. Uh, I constantly hear uh, repetition of Stringer Bell on the wire saying, like, you're taking notes on a criminal conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you exactly. doing right now? We're what actually recording show. this. And I think what the president is a good show. Uh, season three. Um, <laughs> but the idea of uh, him saying that these are just news articles. You don't have proof. And we don't necessarily know that they have the document at this yeah. point. However, if you look over the course of how he operated with classified yeah. information in the White House, after the White House, there's a... Th through line here to some degree? The through line is he... Oh, so look, I don't think he's out there like, I would love to show people classified information, but if that classified information makes him look good. I mean, I remember, I don't remember the details. There was something about some accusation or reality that he had 
revealed something classified to the Russian foreign minister at one point. Um, if you remember, he tweeted a photo about uh, maybe it was something in Syria uh, that was classified at the time. It was in Iran. Yeah, it was an Iran issue. That's it. And there were all those little things. So what was obvious is he does it, to him. Okay, everybody has an ego. Everybody, sorry. <laughs> But most people with an ego try to put national security, particularly when you are sworn in to defend that, you try to put national security above your ego. It's the opposite in this case. And I can tell you what's going on in that room, listening to all the commotion, because I've seen it. I've met with President Trump. Everybody's sitting there smiling, right, because he's talking. And it's so amazing when he's talking. He's trying to impress them. And what I thought was interesting, it was mentioned last night, the lady that on there goes like, wow when he shows the document. And I can tell you, if somebody has seen classified information, the very first time I was presented with something that was like top secret, it kind of takes your breath away because it's pretty big deal, right? It's kind of cool. So it's really interesting to hear the dynamics and know that people are just feeding his ego and he's using this as another way to be fed. I thought it was interesting. Caitlin did a really interesting interview last night with Mark Esper, who expressed concern about, he said, we were generally concerned about the handling of classified material within the White House writ large. Just interesting to get behind the scenes and know that the top people like him were worried then, let alone after the president left. One of the things I get concerned about, guess what Trump can reveal and all that. Up until Donald Trump, there was always this feeling, Republican and Democrat, that, you know, we don't reveal classified information. This is like sacrosanct. This is about as holy as you can get in a secular government. Now you have, in essence, half of the country talking about, well, everybody's talking about overclassification. This isn't a big deal. Stuff like that. That's a concern to me is what the damage is long term to classified. And overclassification certainly is is a longstanding concern, as Adam says. But this does not fall into that. This is a military plan about invading Iraq put together by the, you know, by, by the national defense apparatus in this country. Excuse me, Iran. It doesn't get any more serious than that. So this isn't some marginal document Mm -hmm. that maybe was overclassified. This this ought to be the highest level Mm -hmm. of classification. And just real quick, we don't have a lot of time left before the break, but do you think that not having the document, if prosecutors don't have the document, that this is purely kind of a 50-50 type deal? No. I mean, short answer, you'd rather have it as a prosecutor, but even if not, you can use this tape to show knowledge and intent. All right, guys, stay with us. We have a lot more to come on this and many other issues going forward in the next couple of hours, including Russian President Vladimir Putin set to speak to security forces at the Kremlin just moments from now after armed rebels marched towards Moscow this weekend. And this comes just after Russia says charges are being dropped against the Wagner Group. We've got the developing details right ahead. Breaking just moments ago, the Kremlin says Vladimir Putin will be giving a speech at any moment now to law enforcement units who helped defend Russia from the armed mercenary rebellion over the weekend. The Russian government also just announced it's dropping all charges against the Wagner mercenary group for that attempted revolt. The Russian defense ministry says those mercenaries are preparing to hand over heavy military equipment directly to Russian troops. But we still don't know this morning where their leader is. We have not seen Evgeny Prigozhin since Saturday when he abruptly ended his march on Moscow and supposedly struck a deal to go into exile in Belarus. Let's go straight to our senior international correspondent, Fred Plekton, who joins us now. What do you expect Putin to say? Hmm. 
Hi there, Poppy. Well, first of all, I think he's going to thank those units that were part of that. But uh, perhaps he will also say that certainly there seem to have been some issues uh, for the Russians uh, defending uh, that territory and stopping that convoy from Yevgeny Prigozhin and those Wagner units. Because, of course, some of the things that we saw unfold on that Saturday was those units marching straight towards Moscow with very little uh, to, to impede them on the way there. And, of course, in the end, it took an agreement, apparently, with Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko and Yevgeny Prigozhin to get them to turn back. Now, we heard from Lukashenko earlier today, and, and he basically said that, look, it was painful for him to see what was unfolding because it could have been Russians against Russians fighting each other. And that's why he said that he had to step in with the blessing of Vladimir Putin to talk to Yevgeny Prigozhin. But certainly there still are a lot of things that are up in the air. And I think one of the things that we can see in Russia is that they themselves are sort of trying to come to terms with the chaos and sift through the chaos. You heard Vladimir Putin say that uh, some of these Wagner fighters could go to Belarus if they want, that they could sign contracts uh, with the, the Russian military if they want, or they could go home. Yevgeny Prigozhin, though, last night, from his point, we haven't seen him yet, but he seemed to be talking a big game in audio messages saying he could have marched all the way to Moscow and that people were actually supporting his units. And that might be one of the reasons why, Poppy, late last night, Vladimir Putin had that very short speech where he said, look, we would have put down that uprising anyway, but we were only trying to prevent bloodshed. So still, it seems as though while all this is over for now, there still appears to be a lot of chaos, Poppy. Interesting that what Putin is saying echoes what Prigozhin said about, you know, why mm. he turned around to prevent bloodshed. Do we know where Prigozhin is? Yeah, we don't. I mean, that's it's plain and simple. We know that he's set to go to or he's supposed to be set to go to Belarus. We're not sure whether or not he's arrived there yet. He put out a very long audio message last night where, once again, he justified what he did. He said that a lot of people were on his side. He said that there's a lot of problems in Russia uh, that needs to be addressed. And that's why he felt that so many people were on his side. But as of right now, we don't know if he's arrived in Belarus yet, Poppy. Okay. Thank you, Fred. All right, our panel is back with us. Adam Kinzinger joining us and joining the table, Bloomberg editor and foreign affairs columnist Bobby Ghosh and CNN Global Affairs analyst Kim Dozier. Kim, I want to start with you because I feel like we, through yesterday, kind of have been following this together and trying to piece together what exactly happened here. When you listened to President Putin last night and his explanation for why perhaps it took so long to seem like they were taking any action at all for how things ended and what it means going forward for uh, Prigozhin, what's your takeaway? damage control. He's trying to send a message. So this isn't a grand plan that had always been. This is all chaos in motion. Um, the arrogance of two men playing out. What Prigozhin never understood is all of those months railing against the Russian military and, and by default against Putin because he backed these people to guide his military. Putin was getting angrier and angrier. And the moment Prigozhin had helped win Bakhmut, and withdrew his forces, a clock was ticking. Uh, and that is when the Ministry of Defense put in this plan that said, basically, we're taking this Wagner jewel away from you. We're tired of your antics. We're putting you under our control, not just in Ukraine, but everywhere. And they underestimated what his response would be, especially once they'd uh, allegedly hit some of his guys in the field. That caused this counteroffensive where he rushed from Moscow. And you have to wonder, look, there's going to be a purge to figure out, were people looking the other way to allow him to march forward? Or was it simply confusion? You know, 
Wagner forces look like other Russian forces. And also the Russian military is very top down. People don't do something unless they're ordered to do something. And if they haven't been ordered to attack one of their own, they could have been frozen in inaction, which explains partly how far he got. Now, both of them sort of realize, you know, Prigozhin was out over his skis and had a decision to make. He didn't really want power. He wanted his company back. And now you've got cleanup time. Bobby, this is, we can't forget the biggest threat to to Putin's regime power in 23 years in power. And now he has to go. And he really seems to want to be seen, what he did last night and then what he's going to do any moment now. But you have said this is akin to an emperor without clothes. Can he unite, reunite his people? Well, he he still has absolute power, but he has been exposed. The question is, does he have their hearts? That's Mm. the question. And and does he have the full loyalty of his closest circle of people? Nobody was closer to him than Prigozhin. This is the guy who used to cook for him and, and rose through the ranks because of his closeness to Putin. The guy closest to him sent his troops against Moscow. That's, as you say, that's the strongest challenge he has faced in 23 years in power. You can't square the circle. He's going to speak to his law enforcement and he's going to thank them for protecting the the Russian state. But how does he explain to them why he's letting those people off the hook? He's saying the Wagner forces, all is forgiven. You can go back to the battlefield. He's saying to Prigozhin, everything's okay. You go off to Belarus and and there'll be no consequences. You can't square those two things. And and yes, he controls all the levers of, of messaging, but underneath that, Underneath all that propaganda, Russians are beginning to ask some pretty tough questions about how much they can trust their leader and how strong he is. And if he's not strong, he ain't nothing because that entire edifice is based on a projection of strength. He, ha- he hasn't looked weak until this past weekend. That's a problem. Can I ask you, your column, you wrote a column about kind of the geopolitical impact, particularly in the Middle East, given yeah. Wagner's, the scale of Wagner, which mm-hmm. people aren't necessarily paying as close attention to right now. It's in Africa, it's in the Middle East, um, obviously Syria, Libya. Um, the effect this has on Wagner's operations, which are critical to Russia's ability to project influence uh, across the globe to some degree, certainly in, in very critical areas, um, does this have a, a significant impact? And does that undercut Putin as well? Well, so Putin has always used Wagner he, as a kind of extension of Russian foreign policy, um, while having a certain amount of deniability. And saying, you know, this junta in Mali has employed Wagner. We've got nothing to do with it. We all know Moscow has plenty to do with it. But the question now is, can Putin trust anybody at Wagner anymore? That entire organization was built from the ground up by Prigozhin, all its leaderships all over the world were hired, handpicked by Prigozhin. Now, all of them fa- face a test of loyalty. And if sort of Russian history is anything go by, when a unit of a military rises up against the state, the state is never going to trust anybody in that entire organization. So, right. as Kim just said, the P word is important here. There's going to be a purge. There has to be a purge. There's going to be a purge within Wagner. And there's going to be a purge within the Russian state. It's only a question of timing and and how to avoid the embarrassment that that might cause. I I think we can't underestimate the impact this will have on on global affairs. If you think about where Russia has been engaged, you talk about gray zone conflict or um, hybrid warfare. This is part of what 
Wagner is. So, you know, I mean, look, Crimea, Putin sends in troops. They don't have insignia. He's like, they're not ours. Wink nod. Everybody knew it. But, you know, it's, is that going to trigger a war? Wagner is everywhere, whether it's Libya, whether it's Syria, whether it's Africa, more than likely Venezuela, um, Cuba, other areas. This is going to have such a massive impact. And this is the moment. And I would implore, if I was still in Congress, I would implore the administration to use this moment not to sit back and say, oh, we don't want to provoke anything, but to actually push back against Russia in other areas. You what may not want to directly like? take on Russia and Ukraine, but you can push back harder on Russia in Libya, for instance, push back harder on them in Syria. The Syrian government's on offensive right now and push back against them. And it's not going to be U.S. military necessarily, but there's other ways to do it against their interests in can Africa. Can you explain what those other ways look like? Yeah, I mean, some of it can be, in essence, a private military company not necessarily owned by the United States, but by, you know, companies that are out there maybe doing mining in Africa, for instance. Uh, there's a lot of ways to, in essence, push back or, you know, maybe there's some, in some cases, direct conflicts. If you look at what happened in Syria, for instance, 300 to 400 Wagner soldiers were killed by U.S. military. That was because they attacked him. But there's ways to get this done. And it's time to push back against Russia. If you're not going to do it directly in Ukraine, there's a lot of areas we can do it. You want the U.S. in the business of funding proxy wars via mercenary groups? I want the U.S. in the business of pushing back against Wagner. It is a terrorist or Whatever the vehicle or mechanism. You, you can always offer U.S. military training to replace right. Wagner military training. That's just one way of saying, hey, we'll come in and give you some aid and assistance. I, I think you're exactly right. There's an enormous opportunity here. All those countries, the, mostly their military juntas that have employed Wagner, they're, part of the reason why they employ Wagner is to be on the good side of Putin as well. Right. They want Russian support, they want Russian resources, Russian money, Russian expertise, Russian market access. They're now wondering, wait a minute, did we pick the wrong side here? Mm -hmm. Do we stay with our, our Wagner employees or, and, and do we risk upsetting Putin by doing that? They've been caught in a bind. This is an opportunity for the Biden administration to step in here. And there have been efforts for some time now. The Biden administration, through the Egyptians, through the UAE, have been trying to put pressure on some of these African states to basically cut Wagner loose. This is a chance. And, and I think th if the Biden administration can push hard enough at this moment, It'll make, it'll get some traction. All right, guys, stay with us. We have a lot more to get to. Also, check out Clarissa Ward and ML Baggers reporting on Wagner and their influence. It's extraordinary, and they've been doing it for years. Um, also, new reports that multiple Secret Service agents have testified before the January 6th grand jury. The latest on that investigation next. Plus, what we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. Well, I'm saying exactly what she thinks. That is former Congresswoman Liz Cheney weighing in on the current state of politics and whether she will run as an independent to take on Donald Trump. Welcome back. This morning, we heard that audio central to the prosecution's case on Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents. But special counsel Jack Smith is also investigating the former president for his alleged role in the January 6th insurrection. A new report by NBC News says that five or six Secret Service agents have testified before the January 6th grand jury. I want to bring back in Ellie Honig and Adam Kinzinger. Um, Ellie, I think it's easy to forget that there is another piece of what the special counsel is working on related to January 6th. There's several different elements uh, that people have been trying to pin down. What's your read of things based on 
who is testifying. At this so point. nobody has access to the president's movements like Secret Service. So they could have really valuable information. Important to know, there actually is precedent for this. Back in Ken Starr's investigation after Whitewater, he wanted to talk to Bill Clinton's mm-hmm. Secret Service agents. It was actually resisted in court. And there was a ruling that came out saying, no, this is fair game. So there is no Secret Service slash presidential privilege here. Mm. Um- one thing we don't know that NBC points out is the proximity of these about six or so Secret Service agents to the president on that day. But the big question is, Cassidy Hutchinson famously testified before your committee, the January 6th committee, uh, that she heard secondhand that Trump wanted Secret Service agents to drive him to the Capitol. She also recounted an episode she heard about secondhand uh, that the president in, in the beast tried to grab uh the car's steering wheel and then reach for the clavicles of the driver, right? Trump has denied all of that. But this is what you would assume they're looking to corroborate? Yeah, because if he if he's sitting there, the, the law expert would know better, but if he's sitting there saying, we want to go down to the Capitol, that shows intent. It shows desire. It wasn't just like a one-off where he said it on stage and he's like, nah, I'm really going to go back to the White House. He Because everything we heard is he was angry and he wanted to go. Um, I think this is a pretty big deal. And as a guy that, you know, spent a lot of time working on the January 6th stuff, I personally think this is as important as the classified document case is. I think accountability for this is even more important, even if it's not the president, but it's second tier folks. We can't have failed insurrections in this country. We just can't do it. It's a great point. I mean, we're all so focused on Mar-a-Lago because it's been indicted and it's in court. But Adam makes a perfect point there, which is January 6th is a bigger deal. And DOJ has not done anything about January 6th above ground level as of yet. Perfect. Was it a perfect point? It was a, it was a 9.5 out of 10 point. He was a congressman. We don't have to build him up. He had staff doing that. It was very good. No one is perfect here, gentlemen. Sorry to break it to you. Adam Kinsey-Garleone, thank you. Stay close. All right, happening right now, Russian President Vladimir Putin is addressing his troops after that weekend rebellion. But our next guest says Putin is caught in his own trap of disengaged citizens. Stay tuned. Moments ago, Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed his military at the Kremlin after last weekend's armed rebellion. He is telling his troops, quote, you acted clearly in a well-coordinated manner. By deed, you proved your loyalty to the people of Russia and to the military oath. You showed responsibility for the fate of the motherland and its future. That is what Putin just said. There's little doubt, though, that as the Wagner Group marched towards Moscow, they met hardly any resistance. And when they arrived at Rosson on Dawn, nobody shot at them. You can see them on the street. They're yellow cups of coffee. You saw street sweepers active and uh, social media stars to some degree. According to our next guest, after spending years of cultivating public apathy, Putin found Russians indifferent to some degree to his fate. And Applebaum writes in The Atlantic, this was the most remarkable aspect of the whole day. Nobody seemed to mind, particularly that a brutal new warlord had arrived to replace the existing regime. Not the security services, not the army, and not the general public. Anne Applebaum joins us. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and staff writer for The Atlantic. And Anne, uh, I love this piece because throughout the course of the last 72 to 90 hours, I've been waiting for our colleagues on the ground uh, or on social media to see a level of panic or concern or fear or uprising to some degree amongst the Russian people. And you never saw it. And I kept wondering why until I read your story, your your column, and it started to click a little bit. What were you thinking through as you wrote this? I was thinking about the way in which Putinist propaganda and public communications works. For decades now, two decades since since he originally came to power, 
Putin has mastered the art of sending conflicting messages. You know, one message one day. A, a confusing event happens and he'll offer multiple explanations. Um, different TV channels will make different kinds of speculations. Um, when, the, when the Malaysian plane crashed over eastern Ukraine in 2014, they had literally dozens of explanations. And one of the effects of this kind of fire hose of falsehoods, as it's been called, is that people don't really believe in anything. Um, people don't believe the news, they don't believe the rumors, they have no idea what's true and what's not true. And that, of course, leads to apathy, because if you don't know what's true, then there's nothing really you can do about it. And we really saw that uh, in action in Rostov on Saturday, when the Wagner group arrived in town and said, we're taking over. They walked into the Southern Military District. They um, you know, bought coffee at the, what used to be the McDonald's across the street, and nobody stopped them. Um, and people didn't seem to mind. On the contrary, they were cheering and clapping when they left. Um, and this is because, you know, one one warlord, what the other one, mm -hmm. what's the difference? If Putin mm -hmm. doesn't have uh, cadres of enthusiastic supporters, and we saw that on Saturday. And here's an example of Russian state media trying to spin it. Yeah. I'm sincerely grateful to our president for his exceptional strength and wisdom. There are all these screams that someone is being replaced or removed. I can assure you, no one is getting replaced. The president does not respond to ultimatums. And look, you wrote in your piece that I agree was just really helped us get a lens into what is happening right now. The side effect of apathy was on display for if no one cares about anything, that means they don't care about their supreme leader, his ideology or his war. Speak more to that. Um yeah, well, I mean, you, you will hear now, they're now realizing what happened and they will now try and make up for it. And Putin is making these, you know, pompous speeches and the television will say, yes, yes, we all support him. But we did suddenly have a vision into the true Russia on Saturday. Um, you know, one of the extraordinary things about Russia is that you can't really do opinion polling. Um, so I have a friend who does it there and, you know, nine out of 10 people who you call up will hang up the phone. So any polls that you've seen reflect only 10% of the 10% who will talk to an opinion pollster. Um, and But even, even without that, it's pretty clear that um, stated support for the war means very little. That, you know, if people don't want to sign up for it, and they don't, and they don't want to fight in it, and they don't, and they don't create enthusiastic rallies around it, and they don't celebrate the dead, and they don't have funerals the way the Ukrainians do, you can see there's no emotional attachment to this war. And that is actually a problem for Putin. You know, he has to keep prosecuting an increasingly costly, costly in terms of money and lives, um, terrible military conflict, and people just aren't that excited about it. And real quick before we let you go, the, President Putin has been speaking uh, to his uh, military officials, to law enforcement as well. And in his remarks just now, he uh, applauded them for the process of stopping a civil war. That type of language, I think we've been all been watching his words very closely, listening to everything he says, trying to read the tea leaves, which is probably to some degree a fool's errand. But his framing of the potential for a civil war that was stopped by whatever deal that was made, what do you make of that? So he was the first person to use the term civil war, and he used it on Saturday morning yep. when he talked about 1917 and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my, my guess is that he's now trying to retrospectively act as if some great deed was done by the army, by the military and the security services, whereas, as we know, what happened was the opposite. Nobody stopped them. Actually, the Wagner Group shot down a few Russian helicopters in an airplane, which is extraordinary. Um, and now he needs to somehow give 
you know, you know, retrospective glory to the army that actually didn't do anything. I mean, this is part of that propaganda game that I was talking about. And Applebaum, thank you. Uh, your reporting since Saturday on this has been extraordinary. I really appreciate you coming on. All right. Turning back to the United States, there's been a lot of talk about how is this economy, et cetera, but a lot of experts are focused on commercial real estate taking a hit, forcing jobs and employers to rethink office space, what this could mean for the broader economy. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. After decades of booming growth, the commercial real estate industry has run into a brick wall. Building values are plummeting, offices remain empty, and now rising interest rates could put pressure, uh, the industry could pressure the industry even further. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz is here with more. They're statuesque, vast and staggering, and they're empty. Skyscrapers and office buildings once stacked high with businesses are experiencing high vacancy rates in the U.S., nearly 19 percent, five and a half percent higher than before the pandemic. I think it's a very unique uh, moment, nothing like any disruptive marketplace that I've experienced over the past 40 years. The pandemic emptied offices around the country. Today, the number of people returning to in-person work is less than 50 percent in 10 major metro areas, forcing companies to rethink physical office space. Half of the biggest global companies say they'll need less real estate in the next three years, leaving landlords with loans to pay in a bind. If there's no tenant, you're not making money. What do you do? There's no recouping, you know, lost income for downtime. Stephen Durrells runs the leasing at SL Green, New York City's largest commercial landlord. With more than 30 million square feet of space to rent, the collapsing demand for office space means their tenant vacancy rate shot up from 3% pre-pandemic to 10% today. That calls for some creativity. You can build the set in here, you can have a fight scene in here. SL Green is now working with Backlot, a company that connects landlords at 332 buildings across New York and New Jersey with film and TV companies. This episode of Law & Order was filmed in this vacant office in Midtown Manhattan. The Watcher on Netflix and these East Side offices. I think people are starting to look holistically at how they can support a revenue stream. This year, SL Green says it will earn $3 million from film and TV shoots. It's really helped mitigate the loss of income during the downtime periods. Empty office buildings could be turned into residential, a big need. This project in Washington, D.C., once an office building, is being turned into apartments. But that's not an easy, quick-fix process. Less than 1% of apartments nationwide are converted from commercial properties. And across the river in Arlington, Virginia, the city is trying to get ahead of its empty office space problem at 22%. I'm sitting right today in Northeastern's uh, D.C. campus. Last year, a university was not allowed to take up space in in an office building. Thanks to new city zoning laws, that's now possible, along with seven new types of commercial businesses like animal boarding, hydroponic farms, and pickleball. It's already happening in South Jersey. This 22,000 square foot pickleball facility was a vacant Burlington coat factory in a strip mall. Regional mall vacancy is at a record high. 
Were there a lot of options like this on the market? Yeah, I think we had more opportunity than we thought there would be in the market. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America. So does that mean that the sport needs to find places to play quickly? The greatest threat to the growth of pickleball is the lack of facility. And obviously pickleball is a great way to draw people into commercial spaces. This is also happening in Connecticut. Connecticut, the largest indoor pickleball facility, will open in an old off fifth. So that's an old Saks Fifth Avenue. And we spoke to landlords about what they feel like is going to bring businesses and people back into the office perks. So things like outdoor space, better food options, better things to do on your free moments at work. Uh, it's a tough time for commercial real estate. All the banks are saying something different. These are the lenders, right? What are they saying? So you have someone uh, like Bank of America saying that this is going to be the worst situation since the financial crisis. You have Morgan Stanley saying that this is going to be manageable. You have other uh, banks saying that this is something we need to wait and see. A recession could obviously make this worse. No one's really on the same page right now about what this is going to look like, but at least what we're seeing in major cities, for example, like San Francisco, this is a ripple effect. You have the offices leaving, you have the retail leaving, and then you have fewer people in those cities, living in those cities. Always nice when there's con consensus amongst the experts. Yeah. That was <laughs> a great piece. Vanessa Urkavich, thanks so much. I'm great. here for the pickleball. All right, the tape that is key evidence in former President Trump's federal indictment. CNN was the first news organization to obtain it. Hear Trump in his own words speaking about classified documents ahead. And later today, Trump's aide, Walt Nada, said to be arraigned mm. on charges that he helped Trump hide documents that the Justice Department wanted back. Our analysts are here to break it all down. Coming up next. the crucial evidence that is at the center of the special counsel's criminal prosecution of Donald Trump. As president, I could have been less. Uh, now I can't. This is why tapes are gold to prosecutors. It bolsters the government's claim under the Espionage Act. One interesting quote that was not included in the indictment is that the former president said, these are those papers. You probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, I believe It's incredible, right? There is no other American that knowingly does something like this that gets away with it. The president can't be any different. The Russian president speaking out three days after the armed rebellion led by his former ally. This is a weakened Russian president and a very angry one indeed. We made clear that we were not involved. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. Russian officials say they are dropping charges against the Wagner Group for armed insurrection. Also, Putin tried to get back some of the authority that is certainly lost over the past couple of days. We're beginning to see the fissures at the highest moment of tension in Putin's regime. Well, good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. And if you went to bed at 8 o'clock last night and not 8.05 like I did, you missed something pretty big, and that is a CNN exclusive. A CNN exclusive, it is the audio tape. It is what we reported, CNN reported first several weeks ago, mm -hmm. the transcript, now there's the audio, and now you know the basis and why prosecutors appear to feel very confident about their case okay. against the form, former president. We'll play that and, and more. To hear it is really everything. Former President Trump on tape, in his own words, bragging about holding military secrets he did not declassify as president. That's what he says. This recording was made at Trump's Bedminster, New Jersey Golf Club in 2021. Here the moment Trump appears to indicate that he was holding a Pentagon document containing plans 
for an attack on Iran. Listen. These are bad, sick people. That, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying Millie, to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's see here. <laughs> Yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. You attack and... Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. <laughs> And you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? Yeah, he said you the did. It's pretty, oh, this was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I but think we can probably. Right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out. A, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. it. Now I can't. You know, but this is. Yeah, now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so. I'm look. We here and I have. And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible, right? No, they, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some cokes in, please. Now, the audio you just listened to is crucial evidence in federal prosecutors' case against Trump over his alleged mishandling of classified information after he left the White House. Federal prosecutors have charged the former president with putting national security secrets at risk. Overnight... Trump responded, writing on Truth Social, quote, the deranged special prosecutor Jack Smith, working in conjunction with the DOJ and FBI, illegally leaked and, quote, spun, unquote, a tape and transcript of me, which is actually an exoneration, rather than what they would have you to believe. CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray is live in Washington, D.C. Sarah, when you listen to this, when you talk to lawyers and sources, how damning do they feel like this audio is? You know, I think one of the things that's striking is that we heard from folks when we were reporting this story out before we had ever heard the audio tape that it will be clear to you when you finally do hear the audio why this is such a boon for prosecutors, why this is so damning for Donald Trump. And I think when you listen to that audio, I mean, you hear him saying things like, I'll show you an example. These are the papers. And then there's this sort of rustling sound, again, where he appears to be referring to this document about a potential attack on Iran. And he's in this, you know, meeting we know with autobiographers who are working on a Mark Meadows autobiography with two staffers, none of whom have clearance. And he also acknowledges that this is not a declassified document and that he no longer has the power because he is no longer the president of the United States to declassify it. And he's sort of callous in how he's discussing this. You know, everyone's laughing. He's talking about bring me some cokes in. At one point, a staffer says, you know, now you have a problem when he's talking about how this is not a declassified document. And so there's this very sort of jokey tone around passing around or shuffling potentially some of the nation's top secrets. 
Do we know where these documents are? I mean, I know it seems like a really simple question, but they did, a private company did a search of Bedminster, right, and says they didn't find anything. The FBI didn't oversee that search. That's not odd. They wouldn't. But I think the question is now, do they have the document? If they don't, are they going to search Bedminster? Yeah, I mean, it's a simple question without a simple answer at this point, Poppy. It would be pretty late in the game to be doing another search, given the fact that this has been charged. We know that the Trump team was subpoenaed for this document. They weren't able to produce it. But what we don't know is if prosecutors may already have this from the boxes that were returned to the archives from an earlier search. We just don't know that at this point. But we do know, look, that there's other corroborating evidence prosecutors may have been able to get. We know they talked to Mark Milley. We know they talked to at least one of the other participants in the meeting. It's probably likely they talk to more participants in the meeting. And we know that there's a description, a rough description of this document that shows up in Mark Meadows' book. So prosecutors are going to be looking to piece together all of that evidence. But let's just take a listen to how Donald Trump is trying to spin this document on Fox. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. So Trump wants to say it's newspapers, magazines, and articles. Obviously, we're going to wait and see what other evidence comes out as this case proceeds, Poppy. Murray, can I ask you this kind of bizarre, oh, this other thing? One of the president's closest advisors and aides is actually going to be arraigned today on charges that he helped the former president hide classified documents. What are we actually expecting? Well, it's sort of like a redo, you know, when we saw them all in court in Florida. Uh, Walt Nauta did not have the appropriate Florida counsel at that point, so he could not be properly arraigned. So we are expecting him, Donald Trump's uh, body man, to show up again in court for his proper arraignment. We believe he's going to enter a plea of not guilty. It should be a pretty quick hearing. It's an important move for the case, though. You need all of these defendants entered so that they can actually set a schedule that all of these attorneys can agree to and we can figure out how this is going to proceed. Again, Walt Nauta, a key player who allegedly helped Donald Trump move these boxes around and has been charged essentially with misleading investigators, guys. Sarah Murray, thanks very much. Certainly a big day ahead and a lot of discussion will be about that tape. Let's bring in our expert CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, CNN senior political commentator Adam Kinzinger, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon and CNN political commentator Margaret Hoover. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So nice to have you at the table. You know when you take your kids to like a jungle gym on a weekend when it's raining and you can't hear anything at all because they're all just like constantly screaming and laughing and having fun? That was literally these guys for like the 10 minutes before we got on air as we were trying to do television. The Bring that and energy I, to this. And then I said, isn't it loud in here? And this is like me, the party pooper. No, we're so glad you guys are here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me begin with just legally, Ellie. It's, it's one thing to hear it, but, but for your case, you were a federal prosecutor. Does this help you so much that you can hear it? So back when I was a prosecutor, smart defense lawyers on the first day of the arrest, the first thing they would say to me is, is this a tapes case? Do you have tapes? Sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't. And if you did, they would go, how bad is it? (laughs) If I was asked that here, I would say, yes, and really, really bad. I mean, we just saw Donald Trump's statement. He says, this is exonerating. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tried to read this and listen to it with with a skeptical ear. How would I approach this as a defense lawyer? And honestly, 
I got nothing. I don't know how he... You got nothing, Ellie? On, on the defense side, I don't know. Other than trying to exclude it from evidence altogether, which is not going to work, I don't know how you spin this other than... Well, what if they can't find the document? Exactly. Other than, well, we don't know, folks in the jury, whether this is a real document or not. But even if that's the case, it shows his intent. He knows this is sensitive materials, and he's sharing it with the world. And I think the reaction in that crowd or of whoever's onlookers or adorers that was sitting there with him and I know exactly what that looks like. They're all sitting around smiling, mm-hmm. like reaffirming everything he says and he's just, uh, look at me. Anyway, he's, the reaction of when he goes basically, look at this and you hear that, wow. Right? Yeah. Uh, again, I, I, the first time I ever saw classified information actually was in the military and it kind of takes your breath away. Not because, you know, there's anything specific, but you're just like, I am looking at the secrets of the United States of America. So I think that reaction in there, and I'm sure these people have testified or they're looking to get them to testify, that reaction is going to be like not just a newspaper article. It's something big with a lot of red that says top secret. You also think about how hearing it matters to voters and to average citizens, right? Because obviously the jury and the court is, is the primary audience here. But I think about friends of ours in Iowa who are self-identified Republican primary caucus goers, and they're not going to be able to defend it either. I mean, there is no, there's only whataboutism. There's only look over there. There's only, I mean, that is really the only defense that the tried and true Trump defenders under any situation can, can generate. And it's important for the public and for the political process to just hear him say it. It It, resonates more. Especially compared to his lies to Brett Baer, his lies and all the (laughs) other explanations. And then the really desperate lie he puts out on Truth Social, which you read, which is, uh, this actually exonerates me. That's the, I got nothing, so we're doing total reality distortion field, knowing that a significant portion of his base will buy it. And and that's a key point, by the way, as well. This completely undermines all of the publicly stated defenses. I declassified it, I magically, I thought about it. I mean, here he says precisely the opposite. This is before he knew that it was going to potentially result in a criminal case. He says, could have declassified it when I was office, but I didn't. But he doesn't say this. But by the way, let me show you what's in it. Anyway, I can't think of a way to defend that. Ellie, can I ask you, you know, uh, a a colleague of ours pointed out that in our original story about the transcript, which was kind of the the first kind of crack in this, it ended up in the indictment as well. Now we have the audio tape. Um, Our our colleague, our great colleagues, Caitlin Polans, Caitlin Collins, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Reed, Jeremy Herbert, the story last night, um, doing great work. But they noted in the story, Meadows' autobiography includes an account of what appears to be the same meeting during which Trump, quote, recalls a four-page report typed up by Mark Milley himself that contained the general's own plan to attack Iran, deploying massive numbers of troops, something he urged President Trump to do more than once during his presidency. That is a very specific uh, citation to some degree, which seems to align with this. Whether or not prosecutors have the document there seems to be corroboration in the autobiography itself. Do you assume that everybody who was in that meeting has been interviewed, has given their uh, side of what happened? Absolutely. I mean, there are witnesses. Let's remember, prosecutors are not going to just play this tape into a void. What you're going to do is you're going to, first of all, you're going to talk to everyone in that room, the two biographers of Mark Meadows, the assistant, if you can get the assistant to talk, the person at the end, whoever he says, go get a Coke. I'd want to figure out who that is. Could it be Walt Nauta? We don't know. But if so, that's really important to know. And you're going to have someone on the stand 
narrating it. That's how you actually get the tape in evidence. You, you call a person who was there. Were you here for this conversation? Yes. Does this tape accurately portray what you heard? Yes. So you're going to have someone who's going to be able to describe, really importantly, the physical mo- movements. What did he show you? What were you able to see? What did it say on that document? That's really important. And, and they're going to have human beings to flesh that out. And I think what's really important and actually was a really good move in the, what do you guys call it, a speaking indictment, yes. I guess is the citations of Donald Trump's own words about classified information. Mm -hmm. Because people forgot the whole locker up chant is because of classified stuff. His whole campaign was about classified stuff. To put that there, and you can do it, I guess you can probably do it in trial too, just like, hey, you know, that's important because it shows the hypocrisy. Move to to strengthen the laws on classified (laughs) information, which is just so sort of mind-blowing in this Well, it's a sign of someone who absolutely doesn't believe that they will ever be held accountable for anything or maybe hasn't ever been held accountable for anything. And this may just be the very first time. And by the way, to your point about the narrative of Trump's own words about classified documents, you better believe there are independent expenditures in those three primary states Mm -hmm. right now running Trump's own words about locker up and classified documents to, to... targeted to self-identified GOP early primary voters. Yeah, and, and CNN's most recent poll showed a certain softening in Trump's support, yep. softening being the, the operative verb, uh, when the indictments came out. So this just adds more evidence, more fuel to that. Well, fight. to your point, among independents, what was is so interesting about that, that most independents think that the indictment is just and have even said that the majority of independents think that it's basis for him not... It's all independent. But 26 percent of Republicans in that poll said he should drop out of the race on the basis of the indictment alone. Yeah. Uh, The big question. Tell me how you win the general. Uh, I'll look at your your primary numbers and grant you them. Tell me how you win the general. It's a big question. We'll talk politics later in the show. Guys, stick with us. We definitely have a lot more on this. But we also have more on what happened over the weekend in Russia. Just moments ago, President Putin spoke in Moscow and praised his forces for, quote, stopping a civil war during that rebellion in Russia. What comes next? And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveiling a hardline border security policy, largely mirroring his rival, former President Donald Trump's. How DeSantis's plan may be even more aggressive. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Major developments in Moscow this morning. Vladimir Putin making a live appearance moments ago to thank security forces who defended Moscow against a mercenary rebellion over the weekend. The speech comes right after Putin's regime announced it would be dropping charges against the Wagner mercenary group for the mutiny. You defended the constitution, the lives, the security, and the freedom of our citizens. You saved our homeland from being shaken up in actual fact. You stopped, you virtually, you stopped a civil war. We still don't know where the Wagner mercenary group's leader is. We've not seen Evgeny Prigozhin since Saturday when he abruptly stopped his march on Moscow and supposedly supposedly struck a deal to go into exile in Belarus. This morning, the Kremlin is refusing to share any details about that agreement. And Putin's spokesman says he's unaware of where Prigozhin is either. Putin is giving the Wagner mercenaries a choice. Join the Russian military, go home, or go to Belarus. The Russian defense ministry says the fighters are preparing to turn over their heavy equipment to Russian troops. Let's go to Fred Plekton, our senior international correspondent who joins us this morning. What stood out to you from what we just heard from Putin? Hmm. 
Well, I, first of all, I think it's remarkable that Vladimir Putin went out and, and gave that speech in the first place. I think one of the things that we can discern from that is he's sort of trying to calm down the situation and show actually that he is still in, in charge of things. I thought was really interesting about that speech is that was, there was no criticism or any sort of critique as to the reaction from the security forces when uh, that Wagner convoy was rolling towards Moscow. Because, of course, yesterday, uh, Poppy, we heard from Yevgeny Prigozhin himself. We haven't seen him, but we've heard from him saying, you know, justifying himself and saying that if he had wanted to, he could have rolled all the way to Moscow. He said that people uh, who were there on the side of the roads were cheering the Wagner mercenaries on. He said they were able to block air bases and military bases along the way. Now, here's Vladimir Putin coming out and praising the Russian security forces. I think that's one of the things that he's trying to show, that he's in charge, that he's in control. But also the other thing that I think is really important for him right now is to show that there is still unity within Russia. That everybody is on the same page. Yevgeny Prigozhin is out of the way now. However, they still want to make sure that these Wagner fighters will remain part of the Russian security forces. And one of the things that we heard last night from, from Vladimir Putin, I think was also very important as well, a very late night address uh, where he said, look, they could have stopped this rebellion, but it would have led to bloodshed, Russian on Russian bloodshed. And that's why they did things the way that they did. Whether or not that is fully true is obviously something that, that we don't know, but it's certainly what Vladimir Putin is trying to portray at this point in time. The big winner in all of this seems to be Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian strongman. We heard from him earlier today as well. He, of course, brokered that agreement uh, with Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin to, to make him back off there. He was saying that it was painful for him to watch that situation. But I think one of the other things, uh, Poppy, that also shows just how dramatic that situation were, was and how concerned um, uh, the leaders uh, there were about the situation, he also said that he had put the, com the forces of uh, Belarus onto combat readiness. So that shows that they were extremely uh, concerned about the situation, Poppy. It really does. Fred Plekton, thank you for that analysis and reporting. And here with us now to discuss CNN Global Affairs Analyst and Senior Managing Editor for the Military Times, Kim Dozier, Bloomberg Editor and Foreign Affairs Columnist, Bobby Ghosh, and CNN National Security Analyst and former CIA Chief of Russia Operations, Steve Hall. Steve, I want to start with you. What exactly is President Putin thanking his armed forces for doing over the course of the weekend? You know, this is really less about what he's saying. It's more about damage control and who he's saying it to and why. So first of all, this is sort of a failure of Dictatorship 101. You shouldn't have to be doing damage control if you're the dictator. You don't, you're not concerned about whatever, what people are saying on the streets. You have no political opposition. So when he's speaking to the security forces, this is a message to his local population, the domestic, you know, the domestic Russian audience, that, hey, everything's okay. The thing is, is that six months ago, he never would have had to have done that. He wouldn't have cared about what the Russian population thought because he's got the ability to repress them very easily. When he saw how quickly the Wagner troops were able to cut through whatever security forces were there, he's now much more concerned about what the Russian population thinks about with him, let alone other power centers in Moscow. So it's a real serious situation for I him. I think to that exact point, Kim, it was so interesting when Ann Applebaum from The Atlantic said to us last hour, based on the little resistance, if any, that Wagner faced mm. over the weekend, we got a very rare lens into the real Russia. Because state media is so government controlled, because there is no reliable polling, this was a real lens. Do you agree? Absolutely. Prigozhin managed to create a popular following. Uh, he's the everyman of Russia at the front lines speaking for them. Some people in, within Russia are hearing from their troops at the front lines that they're not getting enough supplies. Uh, that they don't have enough air cover, et cetera. 
And Prigozhin gave voice to all of that. And the lack of resistance was a message to Putin that we've got to tear this guy down. And you're starting to see that some of Moscow's mouthpieces um, have started going on radio, TV, talking about Prigozhin's uh, past as a criminal, um, how he ended up um, spending 13 years in jail because he choked a woman. And one of these um, mouthpieces said, that's all you need to know about Prigozhin. They're going to start laying out his crimes so that the public sees him as a criminal, not as a challenger to Putin's power. Bobby, you hit on something last hour that Steve talked about yesterday, which is Prigozhin is not the, the threat necessarily for Putin. It's the people around him, his close inner circle that are watching and keying on everything that's happening right now. To that extent, you know, the idea has always been that Putin has done a kind of masterful job of never allowing any of those people to have a clear runway or to be kind of the next man or woman up. Um, how do you think they're watching what transpired over the weekend? And do you think we will see signs that people are starting to position themselves? Well, this is true of dictatorships throughout history, all over the world. The clique around the dictator uh, is looking out, every man in that clique, and it's almost always men, looking out for themselves and looking to see if there's any sign of weakness in the boss. And, and that's true in Moscow, just as it's been true anywhere else around the world. Uh, whether or not one of them will step forward to present themselves as an alternative, that'll depend on their calculations about whether it's safe to do so, whether it's safe, whether they feel that the military is fully behind uh, the czar in this case. For the moment, I don't think anybody will dare raise their head. But they will have taken note of the fact that one of their number, Prigozhin, came close and... As far as we can tell, as yet, there's been no consequences for Prigozhin except for being sent off to Belarus. Belarus is not Siberia. He's not been sent off to a gulag. Not yet. He's just been sent off to it's Belarus. It's also not very safe. It's, and, uh, yes, especially if you're in a, in a hotel with a high uh, floor and right. near a window. But if Prigozhin is allowed, and this is very important for Putin, if Prigozhin is allowed to get away with this, then all the people in his immediate circle... It, uh, a thought goes off in their head saying, well, maybe. And that's the last thing any dictator wants. The dictator wants to know that the people around him are absolutely behind him without any daggers in their hands. I think that's why we're hearing that charges have been dropped against anyone who's part of Wagner that took part in the insurrection, but they've left it foggy, sketchy about what will happen with Prigozhin in terms of prosecution. And they've also given everyone within Wagner until this weekend um, a deadline to make a choice. Uh, go to Belarus with Prigozhin, uh, sign a military contract, or go home. So by this weekend, Prigozhin's going to know if his fighters stayed loyal to him or if they've seen the writing on the wall and chosen the Russian state. And if you're Lukashenko... You know, you're, you're, you're looking good right now because you've been given the credit for having negotiated this deal. But suddenly you're, you face the prospect of thousands of these absolute cutthroats being sent off to your country. They become sure. your responsibility. I wouldn't want to be in that position. Uh, or the countries neighboring them all of a sudden, yeah. which I think some of the opposition leaders were saying. Um, all right, I'm going to get yelled at, Steve, but real quick before we go, what are you watching in the next day or two or four ahead that we should all key on? Yeah, I agree with Bobby. You, you really have to see what is going to happen to the inner circle here. 
are, is anybody going to make a move? Because there's nothing but, you know, damage control going on. It's looking very bad to the Russian population. Putin's in a weak position. If he goes a little further, you know, he'll, every day he survives is a better day for him. So he'll, we'll see if he gets out of this. Yeah, that's certainly something to watch. Control room, I'm sorry. I wanted Steve's perspective. <laughs> Steve Hall, Bobby Ghosh, Kim Dozier. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveiling an immigration plan that aims to end birthright citizenship, something protected under the Constitution. We'll get the latest on the 2024 race. Also, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, issuing a warning to stop, as she says, these are her words, electing idiots. That's ahead. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail outlining his border security plan that includes a vow to end birthright citizenship, of course, enshrined in the Constitution. It grants U.S. citizenship to anyone born within the U.S. While visiting the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas yesterday, DeSantis said, quote, dangling the prize of citizenship to the future offspring of illegal immigrants is a major driver of illegal migration. It also is inconsistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. And we will force the courts and Congress to finally address this failed policy. Let's get right to Hoovalon, Margaret Hoover and John Avalon. John, you are itching to say that you think out. DeSantis is correct no, in his reading of the 14th I Amendment. I am not going to go. But the chance to nerd out with you on the 14th Amendment, I mean, bring it on. Good morning. So good morning, many morning good America. Sections. Good morning. I was like, I need another coffee. And then I was like, no, I don't. My energy is coming right from this. There you go. That's, what, That's quite my, a my gift statement, to you. DeSantis. It, it is. But look, this is going to right wing, you know, like catechism lately. But the, the idea that birthright citizenship is not what it seems to be or says in the U.S. Constitution. It's obvious a reaction against illegal immigration uh, and this this phenomenon of sort of birth tourism uh, that, that can occur. Uh, but but you run right into the Constitution and it, it's that hostility to the 14th Amendment that actually is all promising the moon. Right. You can't just Trump ran promises. on this. I mean, but Trump, I mean, Trump ran on a ton of promises that he couldn't deliver. Right. And he won. Amend, so why wouldn't you just he continue to do that? Is there a border wall? I, are, are the classified documents more secure now? I'm just curious. But to that point, though, is that, you know, if you listen to DeSantis yesterday, you look through his plans, you look at the billboards behind him. Mm -hmm. No excuses. Build the wall. Mm -hmm. Does that serve as an actual political avenue for him? Trump promised to do all this and couldn't. I'm going to do it, even though he won't. Obviously, he sees that's his lane. You cannot win in a Republican primary by running to the right of Trump. You aren't going to get the further right people from Donald Trump. They, Donald Trump has a certain portion of the base locked up, and they are with him. You can't also be more pro-life than Donald Trump, who, you know, by the way, got rid of Roe v. Wade, right? Ron DeSantis, which he obviously Ron DeSantis went to a pretty good law school named Harvard. He understood. <laughs> what did he say? Heard, Heard of, of it. it. Heard yeah. of it. He understands these things. It's fair to say Trump didn't build as much of the wall at all as he said he was going to. But making this argument that saying the 14th Amendment doesn't say what it says is just Well, th this stunning. is partly a dog whistle deal, right? I mean, the, 14th, the, the, the controversy on the far right around the 14th Amendment also has to do with the other things it granted, uh, namely citizenship to, to former enslaved people. people. Right, yeah, exactly. Americans. So, and, and look, you know, it, you know, in terms of birthright citizenship, there also is a whole cycle way back in the day about Russians going to Trump-owned uh, properties in Florida uh, for this purpose. So there's a certain physician heal thyself. But the problem is the dog whistle. Yes, is he too smart to know he's not going to rewrite the Constitution? Yes, it, but it, it, the purpose is the dog whistle to a certain segment of the base. Uh, and, and that's... 
you know, it, we're, we're a long way from constitutional conservatives, folks. Can I ask you guys before that you go, um, Liz Cheney spoke last night. Uh, she's always so subtle. Uh, <laughs> her I want you to take a listen to something she said. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. <laughs> and... Um, And so I, I don't look at it through the lens of like, you know, is this what I should do or what I shouldn't do? I look at it through the lens of how do we elect serious people? And I think electing serious people can't be partisan. Yes. Yeah. Well, Amen. I, yeah, she's right. And probably what she would have gotten to in the next breath is why are we electing idiots? And part, part of the problem is we have this closed partisan primary process, particularly on the Republican side. It's on oh. the left, too. And I know my husband gets so happy when I say that because oh. he's been saying it for 15 years. But <laughs> if you look at the Republicans who survived in the last election who voted to convict Donald Trump, who did not vote yes. for Brett yeah. Kavanaugh, Lisa Murkowski, for example, or the two House Republicans who survived that voted to convict or that voted to impeach, all of them came from states that have passed some kind of voting reform, some kind of electoral reform that allows for the primary process to play to a broader group of Americans, not a closed, ideological, extreme base of a party. Independent voters, again, right? That opens no, they're the process. Republicans, no, no. but they're regular Republicans, they're re not extreme but Republicans. They, who have to, it's about the incentive. You thought she co-opted your entire theory she of the did. case. And, Turns and, out and, and, oh, she still has a smarter angle to it. Yeah. But, but I mean, but the real deal here is it's about a screwed up incentive structure, and that's what she's calling out. If politicians have to hold on to their jobs by playing to the base, an extreme wing of the base, yes, you got idiots. Well, Pretty clear. there's that. She is so subtle. Always that, Liz <laughs> Cheney. Always, always. Thank you both. Please Thanks come back guys. more often. We'd love to. Are a ray of, she is especially a ray of sunshine she is. for us. Have on your okay, too. Your uh, golden pears. <laughs> All right, new development this morning he out of Russia. They're lemons. I do not. My wife said they were lemons. I said I they're know. pears. They, they, yeah. I they're thought they were obviously I knew they were, <laughs> I knew they were pears. Get out of here. All right. On serious news, uh, new developments this morning out of Russia in the wake of that short-lived rebellion against Vladimir Putin. We are joined by an American who has long been in Putin's crosshairs and escaped a Russian plot to kill him. Bill Browder is next. We're following several new developments this morning out of Russia. President Vladimir Putin just moments ago addressing law enforcement involved in this weekend's armed rebellion by the Wagner mercenary group, telling the troops that they, quote, stopped a civil war. Russia also announced it is dropping charges against the Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and that the mercenaries are preparing to hand over heavy military equipment to Russian troops. Joining us now is Bill Browder, a longtime Putin critic who was once the largest foreign investor in Russia and is now one of the Kremlin and President Putin's most significant enemies. Putin has singled him out multiple times, including in 2018, as he stood next to then-President Trump in Helsinki. Brad is also the author of Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. I think I actually want to start there, because throughout the course of this weekend and in the days since, I have constantly wondered, when is the crackdown happening? There is no way that Yevgeny Prigozhin can be allowed to just go to Belarus or go to Africa, wherever he might want to go. That seems like an inevitability, is it? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, Putin can't stand, he can't tolerate being disrespected. This is, 
the, the psychology of Russian leadership is like the psychology of a prison yard. Um, in order for Putin to have been the leader for 23 years, he's had to be the seen to be the, the meanest guy in the prison yard, the one who would cause damage to anybody who even looked at him the wrong way. And Yevgeny Prigozhin didn't just look at him the wrong way. He disrespected him in, in the most massive, humiliating way. And so it, it's not just a question of what happens to Prigozhin, but it's a question of what happens to all the other people who either didn't, didn't immediately uh, declare loyalty to Putin during that day or who um, kept quiet or or who perhaps were even working on the other side. In my opinion, the only way that Putin can uh, stay in power is for him to reassert his authority. And the only way he can do that is to become extremely aggressive, dangerous, and violent towards all sorts of people who he doesn't believe are loyal to him. And so I think there's gonna be a huge uh, sort of purge, crackdown, whatever you wanna call it, uh, of the elite, of, of the government, of the military, and of the oligarchs for Putin to reestablish his authority. What would challenge his power? I mean, obviously we saw Prigozhin, but we haven't seen any of the kind of inner circle or close advisors to President Putin side with Prigozhin or kind of speak out of turn to some degree at this point. Why would this be such a threat to his power if no one else is standing up right now? Well, because what, what, the, the only reason that Putin has been able to stay in power is that everyone's scared of him. And what this showed is that you can basically, a group of, I think it was 8,000 men could drive along the highway and take over Rostov in a major military base and then drive to the next town, Voronezh, and nobody stopped them. Nobody shot at them. Nobody said anything. In fact, the people took selfies with them and, and hugged them. And and um, and so if if Putin can't um, exert his power um, by, by just existing, then all of a sudden other people are going to say, look, this is a very profitable job to have to be the president of Russia. You know, you can... You can get hundreds of billions of dollars if you do this job. There's a huge incentive for anybody to have a go at him. And if it looks like he's weak, they will have a go. And so so that, that is the it's the psychology uh, of a prison yard there where, where, you know, unless he can become he can be seen again as the scariest, most brutal guy, his days are numbered. I was struck yesterday. Uh, former Ambassador John Bolton uh, told my colleague Poppy, don't underestimate the possibility that Putin could turn this to his advantage. Do you think that's overstating his 23 years of ability to do such things, given what we saw over the course of the last four days? Well, what I know about Putin is that he um, he's slow to react to, the, to things. Stuff happens, and then, you know, a day, a week, a, a month might even go by. But I guarantee you that Putin is now sitting there and saying, OK, how, how do we get control over the situation? And he can use this situation um, to uh, organize and justify a massive crackdown. And it wouldn't be unusual. We saw the same thing with Erdogan in Turkey. There was a coup attempt made against him. What did he do with that? He arrested everybody in sight. I mean, like literally like 50,000 people went to jail in Turkey of people who, who he didn't trust. And I, I, I'm almost certain that Putin will do that. And if he does do that, if he, if he takes this, this coup as, his, uh, as a um, sort of uh, impetus to to even crack down further, then he may very well end up even with more control over the, the the Russian situation than he had before. But it could also go the other way, and that and that's that's why we're in this period of really dramatic uncertainty. Yeah, and that's the new dynamic. No question about that. Bill Browder, uh, your perspective is invaluable. Thank you as always, sir. Always invaluable perspective uh, to have from him for sure. Okay, ahead. Prosecutors 
are seeking the death penalty for the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students last fall. We have those details. Plus, a new study finds that human action has caused the Earth's access to shift. We'll tell you why. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And welcome back. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty for the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students. In a court filing yesterday, they pointed to aggravating factors, calling the killings, quote, especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, manifesting exceptional depravity. Brian Koberger is facing four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary. Investigators accuse him of stabbing the students to death in an off-campus home in November. Koberger has pleaded not guilty. Last week, his attorney said he had no connection to the victims and claimed investigators found DNA from three other men at the scene. Meantime, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby is blaming the FAA for the major delays and cancellations last weekend. CNN has learned that Kirby sent an internal memo to his staff pointing to the FAA's air traffic controller staffing problems after United canceled hundreds of flights and delayed almost 2,000 on Saturday and Sunday. Kirby said the FAA reduced arrival rates at a major hub of theirs at his Newark Liberty International Airport, and that led to problems. Quote, the FAA frankly failed us this weekend. It led to massive delays, cancellations, diversions, as well as crews and aircraft out of position, and that put everyone behind the eight ball. Now, Kirby says he plans to meet with the FAA and the Department of Transportation to try to prevent this from happening again. The FAA, in response, has said they will always collaborate with anyone seriously willing to join us to solve a problem. Also this morning, for decades, humans have been pumping so much groundwater that it's actually causing the Earth's axis to shift. Doesn't seem great. That's according to a new study in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Researchers used computer models and other data and found that persistent extraction of groundwater for more than a decade has shifted the Earth's rotation to the east at a rate of about 1.7 inches a year. Scientists say the wandering axis could add to sea levels rising and affect climate on a global scale over time. Well, coming up, we're going to be joined by our very own Erin Burnett. She just spoke with a Ukrainian foreign minister in Ukraine on the wake of the weekend revolt inside of Russia. How Ukraine plans to capitalize. Erin joins us live next from Ukraine. Just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us, Phil Mattingly by my side. And it's striking to hear. It's one thing to read the words of a former president. It's another thing to hear it. Right, and you understand why our great reporting team that broke the original transcript then broke this. Uh, we're hearing from their sources how critical this was yeah. to the case that was brought against the president and former president, and we'll have to see how this plays out going forward. But now you can hear exactly what he said In that his is viewed words. by prosecutors as so damning. That's right. We're talking about a CNN exclusive, the new audio recording of Donald Trump apparently showing off a secret Pentagon document with plans to attack Iran and admitting he did not declassify it. Plus, we just heard from Vladimir Putin in a live speech it comes right after Russia dropped charges against the Wagner mercenary group for its weekend rebellion. We'll also hear from Ukraine's foreign minister who just spoke with our Aaron Burnett about that revolt. Also ahead, Bank of America CEO will join us exclusively to weigh in on the economy and the chances of a recession. CNN This Morning starts right now.
And this is where we begin this hour. Major developments in Moscow this morning. Vladimir Putin making a live appearance just moments ago after Russia announced it was dropping charges against the Wagner mercenary group for its armed rebellion over the weekend. Vladimir Putin personally thanking Russian security forces for defending the country against the revolt. You defended the Constitution, the lives, the security, and the freedom of our citizens. You saved our homeland from being shaken up. In actual fact, you stopped, you virtually, you stopped a civil war. That's worth noting. We still don't know where the Wagner mercenary group's leader is. Yevgeny Prigozhin hasn't been seen since Saturday when he abruptly stopped that march on Moscow and supposedly struck a deal to go into exile in Belarus. This morning, the Kremlin is refusing to share any details about that agreement, and Putin's spokesman says he is unaware of Prigozhin's current whereabouts as well. But Putin is giving Wagner mercenaries a choice. Join the Russian military, go home, or go to Belarus. The Russian Defense Ministry says the fighters are preparing to turn over their heavy equipment to Russian troops. All the while, the Ukrainian military trying to take advantage of that chaos in Russia. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the counteroffensive is making advances in, quote, all directions along the front lines. Aaron Burnett is in Kyiv right now. And Aaron, you just spoke to Ukraine's foreign minister. What was the reaction to what unfolded this weekend and what happens next? You know, what's interesting, um, Phil, they, he basically admitted, Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister here, said that they were not aware of what was going to happen. U.S. intelligence was, but they were not aware. So they were taken by surprise. He says, had there been 48 more hours in this rebellion, 48 more hours, that he thinks things would have dramatically changed here on the front line, that some of the panic we've heard from troops on the front lines that they reported seeing in Russian troops on Saturday would have sort of escalated and spilled over. Uh, there's still a huge question, though, here as to what what role the Wagner troops are going to play. Uh, so I asked him specifically about what this means for Putin. Has Putin's grip on power changed? What is the Ukrainian intelligence assessment right now? And here is what the foreign minister just said. I wanted just to start by, of course, the news that shocked so much of the world uh, with the rebellion uh, in, in Russia. Did you have any intelligence pointing to an insurrection like we saw? No, we did not have any specific information with kind of the timeline of uh, possible uh, implementation of Prigozhin's plans. But uh, for us, it has always been pretty obvious that uh, it's just a matter of time when someone in Russia will dare to challenge Putin, because we saw how his uh, power and authority is shrinking and how uh, Russia is entering uh, very difficult turbulence. So Prigozhin is just the first one who, who dared, mm. uh, but I have no doubt that others will follow uh, one way or another. And you know what's interesting, uh, Poppy and Phil, is he emphasized the significance of the fact that Putin backed down, that when he was directly challenged by Prigozhin, uh, you know, he's focused on Prigozhin's not dead, Prigozhin is, is out there, and, and that Putin backed down. So they think that's significant. They think he's just going to be the first, so they believe that there has been a real shift in power, mm. that Putin is still the main center of power. He was clear about that, but that they do think that there's been a shift and a change. Uh, and interestingly, at least in terms of what he's saying, they say that they have no idea where Prigozhin is, so they don't know what's going to happen to these Wagner forces on the front lines here uh, that have been so crucial in fighting the war. That is such a key question this morning. Where is Evgeny Prigozhin? Aaron, uh, fascinating interview. I'm sure we'll see 
all of it tonight on, on your show. But before you go, I think you also talked to him about concerns around the nuclear plant, right, in Zaporizhia. What did he tell you? You know, it's interesting because here the mayor of Kyiv was saying to me last night that they're they're not prepared for what would be catastrophic radiation and a fallout if that power plant were attacked. The head of the intelligence uh, agency here is saying that Putin has drafted and approved a plan to actually uh, bomb, to attack the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is the largest in Europe and, of course, would affect not just Ukraine and Russia, but, but all of Europe. And so I asked the foreign minister how real this plan is, whether they think it will actually happen. Here's that part. One big question out there remains the nuclear question, and obviously the Ukrainian intelligence chief says Putin has drafted and approved, those are his words, plans to attack the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which, as we know, is the largest in Europe. President Zelensky has also warned of such a possible attack recently. How real is this risk, do you think? As long as Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains in the hands of Russia, the risk is real. Uh, the question I think Russia is struggling with is the problem of attribution. Because, of course, they don't want to be blamed for causing uh, another uh, nuclear disaster. So I think they're struggling to find the way to, to perform it as, as a false flag operation or as uh, something else that would not be directly attributable to them. And this is why it gets so important, and I want really to take the opportunity of this conversation, to really call spade a spade. Because what international media did with the explosion at the new Kahovka Dam, when they cast doubt about like who did it, mm -hmm. uh, that is exactly what Russia is looking for, to cast doubt and uh, throw shadow. Uh, we have to be very, very clear with that. And Minister Kaleba also said, and you all may find this interesting, about Putin using tactical nuclear weapons, which, of course, uh, President Zelensky's recently, you know, there's been that concern as well. He said Putin loves life, but those around him love life even more. And that's why Minister Kaleba thinks that, that still in his mind, that it is those around Putin who would actually ultimately refuse to make that move that is so significant. And I should say before I go, uh, Phil and Poppy, he did talk about F-16s. And right now you've got Ukrainian pilots being trained. And he believes that those deliveries will come at the beginning of next year uh, in terms of the F-16s. But that there are active F-16 trainings going on for Ukrainian pilots now. That's really interesting because they've been asking the West for that for a long time. Aaron, fascinating interview. We can't wait to see the whole thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us live from Kiev. Thanks, guys. Can we just see the full interview later tonight? Um, right now, you're looking at President Vladimir Putin speaking again, his second public appearance over the course of this day. Keep in mind, we didn't see him much at all. Most people didn't even know where he was over the course of this weekend when the biggest threat to his power and his reign in 23 years was taking place. Now he seems to be mm -hmm. everywhere to some degree, which I think is kind of a PR 101 type of deal um, that you don't often necessarily see a dictator or authoritarian respond to. 
which is why I want to bring our panel in right now. CNN Senior Global Affairs Analyst Bianca Rodriguez, CNN National Security Analyst and former CIA Chief of Russia Operations Steve Hall, and CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Bianca, I, I want to start with you, because throughout the course of this weekend, I know in my conversations with U.S. officials, I think our reporting as well over the course of the weekend, people are trying to figure out where is Vladimir Putin? Had he gone to St. Petersburg? What's his role here? Why isn't he saying anything at all? Now he's everywhere. Uh, thanking his uh, forces for whatever it was they did this weekend, which didn't seem to be didn't a lot. Right. No. Um, why? Listen, I think whatever happened over the last 48 to 70, you know, 72 hours really shook him up. This was clearly something that he didn't see coming, though he should have. U.S. intelligence saw that. Ukrainian intelligence likely had an indication this was happening. And let's be frank, uh, you had Evgeny Prigozhin really being public uh, on his social media platforms, talking about the need to replace the defense minister in Russia and the head of war in Russia, not Putin himself, who to this day, he says this was not his aim coup was not his aim. His aim was to go to Moscow and have a conversation with Vladimir Putin about what needed to happen to continue this war in the right direction. Now, Vladimir Putin, no one even knows if he remained in Moscow as this took place. And this was one of those scenarios where I believe uh, Prigozhin realized that he had one of two options, go to Moscow and be killed or perhaps try to negotiate, which is what appears to have been what they did. Uh, Vladimir Putin remains in, in power, but I would argue he is weakened. And if you want to compare past attempted coups or mutinies uh, with authoritarian leaders, take a look at what happened in Turkey in 2016 and compare and contrast how Erdogan responded to that. He was on the airwaves the entire time and immediately clamped down on any opposition, including journalists who were covering the war. So this is uh, strikingly different. We know Vladimir Putin is a procrastinator and waits to make these hard decisions until the last minute. I don't know what he thinks he gained by waiting 48 hours to speak to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that Prigozhin had an ultimate plan, and that's why this seemed to, to fade a bit. But this this conflict is not over yet. You know, Steve, given your experience uh, running CIA ops in Russia, I thought it was notable what uh, Minister Kuleber just told Aaron, that there has been, in the Ukrainians' view, a real shift in power of Vladimir Putin. Two of the biggest newspapers, right? Washington Post, Putin works to reassert control. Headline this morning, New York Times, an angry Putin asserts Russians are still united. Someone fighting to hang on to that power? You know, it, again, yeah, it looks like there's a lot of damage control that's going on here. We, we had spoken about this earlier, uh, but it's really interesting. And, and I think Bianca makes a good point. Dictators usually don't have to do this. This is this is something that we're used to seeing in, in Western leaders. Right. I mean, there's you know, there's some big flap someplace and everybody takes to the airwaves and starts, you know, getting the newspapers to get the to get the word out. Putin certainly has those capabilities. I mean, he certainly controls the press, uh, which would, means that 90 percent of the Russian population are going to hear what he wants them to hear. But again, to have him in the position where he's got to say, OK, what do I need to say to keep the people that I want in place? And those are two groups. There's there's the domestic folks, you know, just you know, normal Russians who, again, six months ago, he didn't have to worry about. He could simply count on his security services, the secret police to repress them. That didn't work really well against the Wagner guys. So there's a question about that. And then, of course, there's his inner circle. And if anybody's going to cause significant change quickly, it's going to be them. But the murkiness that we see, the, 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 you know, the 48 hours, um, not knowing exactly where Prigozhin is, yeah, he's convicted or he's going to be tried. No, he's not. I mean, that back and forth stuff, I think, shows some looseness in the mm -hmm. regime, some questions inside the regime. We can't see exactly what they are because it's so Byzantine inside the Kremlin. But there's a lot of sort of slack that you didn't see before. John Miller, you, you worked at ODNI in a past life. 
Um, this has to be an incredibly complex situation for U.S. intelligence to try and divine what's actually happening. Take us behind the scenes. What are they trying to do right now? So when I worked in the DNI, we worked in the division analysis division that was in charge of preparing the president's daily briefing. So imagine preparing that briefing today. Um, first of all, you're going to be asked to deliver answers for questions that there are no answers for. Um, so you're going to have to deliver analysis, which is how much damage has Putin suffered from this? Is there an actual tear in the in the fabric of the power of Putin's regime? Um, and then harder questions, which is, what was Prigozhin thinking as he was running a convoy towards Moscow, seemingly for a, a large stretch without intervention from the Russian military, with the police blocking streets so the motorcade could get through with cheering crowds? Did he think that there was someone on the other end in Moscow that was going to back that play? Now, in Putin's version of the president's daily briefing, he's asking those same questions. Does he have someone on the inside? Was there going to be help? Who can I trust? That means his circle is going to get smaller. And, you know, taking beyond his example of the uh, attempted coups in Turkey, of which there were two, you know, uh, 51 generals uh, were sentenced to life in prison. Thousands of people were fired and pushed out of the army. Um, Putin either has to figure out who failed on the military side, mm -hmm. who failed on the intelligence side in terms of indicators and warning. And even if he can't figure it out, he still has to figure out who's going to pay for this. Because if I don't take decisive action, if I don't rotate the generals, if I don't fire people, um, I'm going to continue to look weaker and weaker. So there's a real scramble going on in the White House to understand this and in the Kremlin to figure out what to do about it. Yeah, and underscores this is dynamic and has a lot more chapters of this book to play out. Guys, thank you very much. Steve Hall, Bianca Goldrika. Appreciate it, John Miller. Um, I'm not letting you loose yet. You're sticking around for a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot more to talk about. Former President Donald Trump on audio tape discussing those secret documents that he admits he didn't declassify. We're going to play that for you the first time we're going to hear it, right? We just got this last night. Break down what prosecutors may be zeroing in on. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A first on CNN, that newly obtained audio of former President Donald Trump discussing classified documents at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf club in 2021. Now, it happened in an interview with people working on the memoir of former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. The special counsel's indictment alleges that Trump shared classified information with those in attendance about a plan to attack Ron, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is with us right now. Ellie, we're going to start by playing the tape for you in its entirety, but we'll pause at key moments. Sure. We're going to have you kind of break down from your perspective, your expertise, what it actually means for the prosecution's case. Let's start with this. These are bad, sick people. That, but, that was your coup, you know against you. That's well, it started right at the like beginning. Like when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a kid. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right. Trying Millie. to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. 
Wow. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see here. Yeah. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. If you had to boil this entire case down to two simple sentences, this would be it. This is secret information. Look at this. And if we break it down one at a time, look at this. This tells me as a prosecutor, he's showing them something. You can hear them reacting to it. You can hear papers rustling. So he's sharing this information with them. Now, we don't know exactly whether there's an actual classified document. It certainly sounds like it. We don't know if DOJ has this. But either way, the key point is this is secret information. This shows Donald Trump has, knows they have this information, has seen it, knows that it's sensitive, and is sharing it with other people. Those are crucial points for the prosecution okay. to make. Crucial points there. Now let's listen to this. You attack and Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Though? Yeah. I was just saying because we were talking about it, <laughs> and you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? Yeah, He's in the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Well, so much for the claim that this was just golf shirts and love letters. This shows Donald Trump knew this was done by the military and given to him. That is so crucial here. And one thing to keep in mind, it doesn't technically matter for the charges that have been made in this case, whether it was classified or declassified. The law here relates to sensitive defense information. And here he's saying this is a document created by the military. Earlier, he said it relates to attack plans for Iran. And so that gives you that element this is almost the definition of sensitive defense information. So classification is a necessity, but listen to this. Uh, I think we can probably, right? I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have yeah. it. No, I can't, you know, but this is classified. Yeah, This puts the lie to Donald Trump's campaign of public defenses. How many times have we heard him say, I automatically declassified? I declassified through mental thought. Nothing that I had here was sensitive. Here is acknowledging correctly, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't. That's an admission that he did not declassify it then, that it remained classified as of the moment of this recording in July of 2021. And more to the point, He's sharing it. He's disseminating this information with others. This is going to be a key point for prosecutors because they'll argue to the jury, this is what he was doing with this. He's showing and sharing this information to people who have no security clearance. He's doing it for his own political benefit. He wasn't just keeping this information in boxes. Not a good idea, potentially illegal to do that. But he's distributing it out in the world carelessly, recklessly, and dangerously. And a final piece to listen to. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. It's incredible, right? No. They, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some Cokes in, please. Okay, bring some Cokes in, please. You may be wondering what's the relevance. Kind of, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) I'll give you two things that I would argue. First of all, there's an overall tone of sort of casualness about this. They're throwing around state secrets, and Donald Trump is taking it sort of very lightly. The other thing to keep in mind, there are witnesses. Everyone you hear in that tape reacting to Donald Trump is, in my mind, a potential witness for the prosecution, people you're going to hear called at trial. And the question is going to be, 
Tell us what was happening in that room. We can hear it. What did he show you? What did you see? Also, who's he talking to here? We don't know. Could be Walt Nauta, the co-defendant who's appearing in court later today. If so, then you know Walt Nauta was in that room and knew how sensitive these documents were. Uh, Poppy, Ellie was able to take a piece that I thought was just kind of a funny end to the tape and find a legal element to it. <laughs> of course. I can always take the fun out of it. Leave it to Ellie. <laughs> Leave it to Ellie. Thank you. Come on. Come over here. Let's talk about this. Let's also bring in our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. Okay, John, that was so helpful, I think, to go through it and dissect what's important about this. Can you speak to why this particular document, by the way, about a potential attack on Iran is so crucial? Two reasons. One, as Ellie pointed out, he's not charged with disseminating classified information. He's charged with illegally possessing information about the national defense. Now, there's a lot of documents that were found, and they're about a lot of different things. But if you were going to have one recorded on tape where he's talking about possessing it and showing it to people without clearances, a contingency plan developed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to attack Iran, if it came to that because of some circumstance, is about as purely national defense information as you can get. It's not an analysis of the political uh, economic situation in Moldova. It's, it's a document about the U.S. defense and leaking that information, sharing that information. Joking about it. Joking about it, giving it to someone who might put it in a book, discussing the idea of can we hand this document over in the loose lips sink ships department uh, once your attack plan is out, your attack plan is, <clears throat> is, is vulnerable. So I think that it, it has outsized significance uh, than it would if it was any other classified document. Yeah. And the, the whole defense that we've heard from Trump over and over, this was golf clothes and letters from uh, other world leaders, is such a nothing to me. It's, it, it's such a meaningless defense because no one cares about that stuff. Fine. That's not the problem. That's not what you're charged for. You're charged with this document, which he plainly was very aware of and willing to use. Can I ask you, like, along those lines, that, that's the former president's defense on Truth Social or in interviews with Fox. We haven't necessarily heard his lawyers lay out their defense of the case yet, yeah. uh, which is understandable. So many times over the course of the last six or seven years, something has happened and everybody goes, Jail or indictment or whatever. The indictment has happened here. What's his legal team looking at right now? How do they defend against that and the case? So I think there's a really important point here. Donald Trump does not have to state his legal defense to us. He does right. not have to state it publicly. He has a right to make a defense. He has good, talented, smart lawyers. I used to work with Todd Blanche. He's very good. There will be a defense. We don't know what it is yet. They have the right to take some time to go through the discovery, which they're just now getting, mm -hmm. and figure out what they want their defense to be. So I always kind of reject the dismissive statement of, oh, they're just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, that is the job of a defense lawyer, figure out what, what may work and what may not. But I do want to say this. Every public statement Donald Trump makes is usable against him in court before the indictment, after the indictment, and you box your legal team in when you say things that are inconsistent with the evidence and that are contradictory. That's really damaging. Yeah, and every interview he does, this yeah, is no. a huge focus. Ellie, thank you very much, John Miller. We appreciate it. Also, this ahead, the economy, right? We're still adding jobs. We're seeing inflation improve a bit. Are we even going to have a recession? Bank of America CEO Brian Wynahan joins us live in studio ahead. If Reaganomics was based on the idea that if you cut taxes for the wealthiest corporations, the wealthiest people in the society, and that at some point 
the remnants of those will trickle down to the middle class and the working class. Bidenomics is the exact opposite. Bidenomics says that the way you grow the economy in this country is you grow the middle class. White House bring out some new messaging in its effort to tout the president's handling of the economy. Bidenomics is what they're calling it. Biden will be in Chicago tomorrow. He's expected to speak on this and we're told underscore recent job gains and low unemployment. But the president is facing some serious headwinds. Not only do polls suggest voters are skeptical of him on the economy, but there's also the nagging threat of a potential recession. Let's talk about all of this with the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, who joins us exclusively this morning with some news that we'll get to in a moment. But good morning and thanks for being here. It's great to be here again. Do you think Bidenomics, this is the new term, is it working for most Americans? Well, I think if you look, the U.S. has been fighting inflation. So after the pandemic, the amount of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, i.e. the money, the lower rates and the money the government pushed out to offset the, better, the, the impact that of the COVID-19 pandemic, you now have a situation where inflation has to be fought. So rates have gone up. And so what we have predicted is a recession starting the first part of next year. Actually, we moved from the latter part of this year to the first part of next year, but it's a mild recession. And that's given the strong jobs, the strong employment levels, wage growth is still strong, but inflation is still higher than they want, so than it should be. And so the Fed has the rates to push that down. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna be a little bit of a collision course. Interestingly enough, you're starting to see the aspects of a slowdown come through. Our consumer spending shows that, you know, that behavior is slowing down, which is, Good and bad. Good in that that's what the Fed needs to say. Inflation under control. Not so good because it does mean we have a higher probability of that mild recession coming true. What is this collision course you just mentioned? How well, does that play out? Because I'm just wondering, could this recession be so mild most Americans don't even notice it? it I mean, our projection is for two quarters of negative GDP growth, minus one percent, minus half a percent, minus a half a percent. That is not a huge right. downturn. Um, could, you know, in the pandemic, we dropped uh, 30 percent annualized in a quarter or something like that. You know, so, you know, it'll be mild. And what that means is the unemployment levels will get to maybe we get it up as high as almost five percent, high fours. The, but that's kind of interesting because we used to think four and a half percent was full employment. Right. And now we're sitting three point seven. So are you so. saying most Americans might not even notice it? They'll, they'll notice it in that, the, that what they're noticing now is the cost of things went up mm -hmm. and that's caused them to change their behavior. So spending 21 to 22 for our customer base for the whole year was up 9%. Year to date, it's up 5% and it's slowed during this year. Yeah. That, that's more consistent with low inflation. So they're adjusting their behavior based on the cost side and they will be affected by the rates if they're trying to get a new mortgage, trying to buy a new car. So they'll feel the impacts of what's going on. If they keep their job, they won't feel the impacts of recession. And that is the great debate is will unemployment get a lot worse or just a little bit worse? Yeah. And that's the most important thing is to have people employed and earn money. I, I thought it was interesting because you said this a few weeks ago that you're seeing patterns, which you just alluded to, that people are spending in a way that's more consistent with a 2% inflation economy, not a 4% inflation economy. And economists would agree that you know inflation jumps as consumers are spending more. If, if spending has moderated so much, why hasn't inflation gotten markedly better? It's just, it, there's a lag to all this, you know, so I'm talking about data that's literally coming from the month of June through June 21st or something like that. What you're reading about inflation is a calculation that is of so year. So we'll get there. Yeah. So we'll get there. And, and I think they've, they've sort of tipped it down, it's flattened out, it's tipped down in some areas, uh, you know, but there are areas where it's not necessarily tipping down to the level they want. And that's why we think it'll take them all of this year and all of next year to actually get more. All of next year. And end of 25 before they get inflation in line with their long-term targets. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said a few weeks ago, it was a, quote, pretty good guess that the central bank would rate uh, hike rates twice more this year. They paused for now. 
Will twice be enough to get inflation where we to a 2% target? I, th- I think the first 5% was the big move. The next half a percent is not going to make as much difference. So the question is how long they hold them at this level. We have that till next May before they start cutting rates. So whether they raise rates a couple more times, and you can have a great debate on that. The market you know, six, four mm-hmm. weeks ago was no more great cut increases. Now it's two. But the reality is, is the duration of holding is what he says that people, I think, are now paying more attention to. It'll take them longer to run out long? inflation. Uh, Given the recent bank failures and what we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, the takeover of First Republic, is Bank of America considering buying up any small regional banks right now? We are prohibited by law for 30 plus years for buying a bank other than through an FDIC liquidation. Like it, what it, we saw with J.P. Morgan and, yeah, and, and so First Republic. Would there be opportunities? I don't know. I actually well, do hope there won't be because I don't. I don't want other banks to fail. You hope there will be. I, I hope you there think, won't be. Because right. I don't you want hope there won't fail. be. Yeah. Do you think there might be? Or more, should we prepare for more situations like we saw? I think it depends on really where, where the economy goes. The industry has strong capital, strong liquidity. These specialized businesses had a problem that went through the system. The system's recovered. And you'll see in the earnings reports this quarter, you know, good earnings. And you can see that data comes out every week. The deposits are stabilizing the industry. The deposits are coming down because of the Fed actions and stuff. So it's a little hard to get people to really understand the Fed's intention is to bring the deposits down in our industry. Otherwise, they can't slow down the economy. And so that's what's going on. And so I think the industry has very strong capital, very strong earnings, mm-hmm. and is in good shape with good reserves. The question will be how deep the recession is will be the question that will answer the question. Really tied, tied to that. Um, let me ask you this. The Senate Banking Committee, just in a bipartisan fashion, so you've got Sh- Sherrod Brown um, and Tim Scott on the same page on this. They both they passed this clawback executive compensation legislation for CEOs of failed banks like SVB and Signature. Do you support that? We have, we've had clawbacks now by what people don't understand is after the financial crisis, the the supervisory architecture required you put clawbacks in. So we've had them in place, I think, since 2011. This is different. This is basically saying these CEOs should have their compensation taken away if you run a bank in the way that SVB was run. And and we already have that in our, and by the way, it applies to more than the CEO. It applies through the things. If you Mm -hmm. misbehave, we claw back. And so this wouldn't be new to us. The the regulation, supervision has led us there. If they make it law, we'll deal with it. Okay. Let's ask about what you're doing right now. You're headed to Ohio after your stop in New York. You are announcing Bank of America is expanding in a different and interesting way into different and new markets. Why? Why now? Well, if you go back about 10 years ago, uh, 2014, we started this program, and you looked at the top 30 markets. We are the number one market share in the most of any company. We had the aggregate largest retail banking, but we weren't in seven of the top 30 markets, and we weren't in like 15 of the top 50 markets. So we're basically completing the franchise because of a historical accident. We weren't in Ohio. We weren't in, 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 in Indiana. We weren't in Minneapolis. And so we started with Denver, Minneapolis. The best city you just named, yeah. Minneapolis. And, and then we moved across. <laughs> and so what we're announcing now is sort of the third wave in that. So uh, Omaha, Boise, Birmingham, Hudsville, Dayton, these other cities that are just continuously filling. So if you think about it, we're now at 76% of the population. We'll be at 80% of the population. And we're just basically pushing this great business that we have, the great service we offer customers, great product sets we offer, pushing it deeper in. And uh, on top of that, we're also bringing our 
uh, community bank, we call it, out to the LMI neighborhoods. Increasing oh, LMI, six, low, lower middle income. Yeah, lower middle income neighborhoods, increasing the numbers of those from six to 700. So the idea is it's not only our great digital capabilities, it's our branch capabilities and our advice, but also geared towards the neighborhoods we can provide great support. More access to that banking, including what I found was interesting is non-English non speaking customers. Oh, yeah, we've had uh, you know, Spanish speaking uh, mobile presence, web presence for many years, and it's a big part of what we do, including our account opening is a, has a high percentage of Hispanic Latino uh, U.S. citizens. Before we go, we'll talk more about this next time, but I have to ask you about AI because it's what everyone is talking about right now. Are you using it like ChatGPT at Bank of America, and are you preparing for a world where you believe that AI will give people financial advice at Bank of America? Not a human, yeah. but AI. Machine learning, yes. Uh, generative AI, where it think, thinks for itself, that's still not use. But so if Erica, which is a product we have today, has 18, 20 million users. They use 150 million times a quarter. That is basically you ask it a question, it gives you an answer. It's more of a controlled environment. We've, we've got to work with AI and, and, and generative uh, AI uh, to get that right so it doesn't hallucinate in the words you hear about it. So we're working all that. That'll be down the road, but we believe in the machine learning and the ability to supplement humans. Our models that we have that do portfolio construction wow. that goes through Merrill Edge. Do you have stuff. the empathy to understand what a family needs? That's where the human is still critically important. And, and so the theory is that AI would replicate the human brain and human thinking. We'll see what happens. That's still out there. Well, I'd love to not get replaced, but we'll see. Brian Moynihan, thank you very much and good luck in Ohio. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Bob. Bill. I have like three pages of notes I want to talk to you about, about that interview, Bobby. <laughs> Also this morning, the Supreme Court set to announce major rulings in this final week of the session. What we can expect coming up next. But before we go to break, Happy Gilmore is heading to college. That guy! He shouldn't have been standing there. <laughs> not, not, not that Happy Gilmore, but this Happy Gilmore, 17-year-old Landon Happy Gilmore from Indiana, just committed to Ball State University to play golf in pursuit of a career in the professional tour, just like the movie character played by Adam Sandler. Landon won a long drive contest, and since that day, nearly a decade ago, he's gone by Happy Gilmore. Of course, Adam Sandler took the time to support the other Happy's decision, retweeting Landon and writing, quote, go get him, Happy Pulling for you. That is a live look at the Supreme Court this morning, where we could get at least one major ruling today. We're still waiting on several big decisions, just four days left in the summer session. That means we're going to be talking to CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Piscupic. She's here. Joan, we have these kind of handful of big decisions we're still waiting for. Do we expect any of them to come today? Yes, we do, Phil. And, you know, the court never tells us in advance which cases we'll be getting on which days of this last week. And the suspense in the courtroom is especially heightened because they announce their opinions in reverse order of seniority. So we usually start with some of the junior justices with the less, less anticipated cases, and then we get the biggies. So let's, let me just mention a couple, uh, two that really will affect students nationwide and higher education. But along with those, we have uh, a, a 
North Carolina redistricting case that could change election law nationwide. We have a religion versus uh, gay rights clash uh, brought by a, a website designer who wants to start a wedding website business but does not want to serve same-sex couples. But the two that I'll highlight for us, uh, Poppy and uh, Phil, involve you know higher education and uh, affirmative action for starters, whether racial affirmative affirmative action policies that have been in place for decades and that have enhanced campus diversity and really given black and Hispanic students a leg up, whether they will be ended. A group of conservatives have challenged that. And then the other one that will really affect students nationwide involves President Biden's uh, planned loan forgiveness program in the wake of COVID. It's a billion dollar program that uh, Republican states have challenged saying that only Congress could have done this, not the executive. But that program could affect some, you know, 40 million students, get it, giving them uh, loan reprieve up to about $20,000 uh, uh, a piece. So those those two uh, cases involving higher education probably will be most consequential. Joan, on the affirmative action case, it sure. appears that this court is ready to reverse where it has stood since, you know, Greta versus Bollinger in 2003, when the court said, the majority said, we think there is a compelling state interest in diversity. And that is such a compelling interest that universities can use race as a factor. Do you expect if you're reading the tea leaves from the oral arguments, that all may change this week. I do, Poppy. And if there's if if I'm going to be shocked by anything this term, it's going to be if they do not roll it back, because this has been something that Chief Justice John Roberts has been working toward. He has a conservative majority to do it. I anticipate that he will, which will be staggering for the country. As you yeah. mentioned, it's been more than 40 years of policies. But uh, we never say never, and this court could surprise us, Poppy. We'll see sometime this week. We will. Joan, thank you very much. We know you'll be with us as those decisions come yeah. down. Thanks, Joan. All right, well, Trump, DeSantis, they are set to collide on the campaign trail in New Hampshire, the latest on the 2024 race. Coming up ahead. Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis campaigning in New Hampshire on the same day as his rival, former President Donald Trump. DeSantis has gotten himself into some hot water in the state as he faces some backlash from major Republican women's groups for scheduling one of his events at the same time as their annual fundraising lunch, which Trump is headlining. Back with us, former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger and our very own Bianca Goldrigo. Good morning, guys. Good morning. This is like the most New Hampshire fight. Do te explain. There's a way to campaign in New Hampshire, and if you don't campaign the way you're supposed to campaign in New Hampshire, New Hampshire gets mad. So two and you, Florida guys don't you know how to campaign. Chuckle about in New the idea of it. No, I think Trump's team knows how to campaign in New Hampshire. You chuckle about the idea of it, but especially in that state, a town hall state, every voter counts state, um, it matters. And I think. The issue, and I'll ask you guys this, but the, the issue has been everybody kind of thought that there would be a breakout for DeSantis in New Hampshire. Perhaps it fit his profile. Is this? No, it's not happening because DeSantis, is, the campaign, he, he spends a lot of money on great people, and it's completely not getting out of the gate. Part of it's the candidate. He's not good with people. Part of it's just, you know, whenever you have a campaign. Is that real, campaign, though, or is that kind of No, I think it's just pretty real. I served with him. And he's, oh. he's, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to go after his personality, but he's not, he doesn't love shaking hands, right? He doesn't love interacting with people. I remember talking with him in the cloakroom once, and in the middle of the conversation, he just picks up his phone and walks away. I'm like, oh, cool, all right. But, uh, 
I mean, I've also wanted to do that. <laughs> I get it. I understand that. But the, the thing, I think Chris Christie is stepping in on his territory. Chris Christie is the truth sayer. I mean, he's been saying some great stuff as far as I'm concerned. And I think he's really taking a lot from DeSantis in the New Hampshire lane. Well, and it does appear that Sanders is sort of trolling Trump, but not actually going there, right. as you said about Chris Christie. So encroaching upon his space and territory, but not addressing the issues that Chris Christie really is. And that is these indictments. I'm curious to see if he says anything at all about this new audio that CNN obtained. So he seems to be taking him on in terms of I can out Trump Trump with regards to policies. And look, he's failed on that front. But when it comes to the character issues and the legal issues, He's not going there. And that coupled with what you said, that the, the weakness really is his lack of personality is well, what people are describing. And as Chris Christie says, how are you going to run against the front runner and never talk about him? Yeah. So DeSantis's play is He did Trump talk collapses. about it at the border yeah. yesterday. Yeah, I mean, he, he'll, he'll, he'll tap around it. But DeSantis's play is Trump collapses. DeSantis is there to pick up <clears throat> all, his, all his pieces. That was the play in 2016, too, and it didn't work. Adam, be honest. It's, like, it's weird for me to call you Adam. You can call me Congressman Adam. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only Bianna. Thank you very much, guys. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Um, thanks to all of you for joining us. It was a fun show. Yeah, Can we do it, it again tomorrow? Good, yes. Yeah, I'll come back. Thanks, pal. <laughs> See you well, tomorrow. You have to allow me to come back. CNN News Central starts right after this break. Have a good day. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.